Okay, welcome to the second day of Governing Academic Life Conference. Uh, my name is Aicha Chibukcu. I'm an assistant professor in human rights in the Department of Sociology and Center for the Study of Human Rights at LSE. I'll be chairing this session, which is called Governing Academic Freedom. Our first speaker today is Professor Stefan Ball from the Institute of Education, and his presentation will be called Universities and the Economy of Truth. Each speaker will have about 20 minutes. Uh, we have three presentations, and after that we'll have half an hour for question and answer. So without further ado. Thank you. Um, I thought I'd stand up as I'm going to spend the rest of the day sitting down. Uh, it would make a, a, a change. Um, as I was sitting through the various papers yesterday, um, in my mind and, and on my PowerPoint, uh, I was ticking off all of the things that I was going to say. Um, and by the time it got to the end of the day, there didn't seem all that much left. Um, but when has that ever stopped an academic <laughs> talking? Um, but I have also tried to think about picking my way uh, through what I want to say in a slightly different way. And certainly the, the emphasis of what I want to say is, is slightly different from the emphasis of most of the papers yesterday, although it does pick up on the point that um, Louise made yesterday um, about the dual aspects of neoliberalism um, in terms of something Awaron calls neoliberalism with a big N, which is to do with structural and economic processes and changes, and neoliberalism with a small n, which is to do with the, the creation of neoliberal subjects and the internalisation of uh, a neoliberal subjectivity. And so I'm also having, going to have a slight different emphasis in that, that rather than giving emphasis to, although I may mention in passing some of the larger structural and economic aspects of, of change as they impinge upon university life, I, I, I want to focus more on, on trifles and small things, as Foucault calls them. Um, and I want to pick up on his point um, that the, the, the processes of, of discipline, categorisation, normalisation, exclusion uh, are actually done for the most part within institutions through mundane, everyday practices. So I want to think about some of those mundane, everyday practices and I want to look at those, at what Foucault, and I'm actually sticking closely to a kind of Foucauldian analysis here, or starting with one anyway. Um, I, I want to address what Foucault calls points of contact. Um, he describes those as being um, the relationship, the points at which technologies of government intersect with technologies of the self. So I want to try and identify one or two of those. I, there are more of them in, in the paper. There is a paper, although it's not really finished. I didn't send it in, but if people were really keen, probably won't be when they've heard the rest of this. But um, if you are. So I, I want to look at these points of contact. I want to think about them in terms of um, moments and practices of complicity and or, or refusal. And this also, in a sense, picks up on the sort of almost debate that we had yesterday about this notion of, of the injuries of neoliberalism. And what I want to emphasise is, is not the injuries done to us, but our complicity in the processes of neoliberalisation. So, so what I want to think about is what Foucault, the question Foucault asks, what are we today as academics? And... Um, among many starting points, um, Michel Dean puts it, the problem of government cannot be disassociated from a reflection on the relationship of individuals to themselves. So I want to think about that relationship of individuals, us to ourselves. Um, or, as Michel Foucault put it in one of many ways, each of my works in, is a part of my own biography, one for one or other reason, I had occasion to feel and live those things, what he called sometimes things that were cracked, um, so I want to think about some things that are cracked in, in terms of my own experience, or what as somebody quoted yesterday, what is today the greatest danger that we have to decide every morning. So, as I've said already, um, I, I want to explore 
a little bit things that are out there, Peck and Tikal put it, um, but more I want to think about things that are in here. I mean, they think about that more in a spatial sense. I'm thinking about it in terms of what gets in, in here in terms of our soul, uh, the soul of the academic, and how the modes and forms and modalities of our academic work are being changed and we're being reworked and remade as academic subjects. Um, so there are, there are three sets of resources I use here. Um, I drew on, draw on Foucault's conceptualizations of neoliberal government, as many people have, the lectures on um, uh, birth of biopolitics. But also I draw on some of his earlier work uh, on truth and power, in particular, particularly an interview he gave on truth and power. And then a little bit, I allude to some of, um, very briefly, some of his later work on, on parousia and truth-telling. And this paper builds on um, a series of other papers that I've written which explore some of these. And the previous paper was about parousia and truth-telling uh, in relation to educational life. Um, so uh, I'm not going to pick up that again here. But that, that's the paper where I explore what I call the politics of refusal. And this politics of refusal is, is rather different, not over and against, but different from the kind of politics that were being talked about yesterday. So I, I realise there are problems with the metaphor, but rather than thinking about standing in front of the tank... What I'm thinking about is standing in front of the email. <laughs> what do you do then? That's what, that's what I'm interested in. Those, those moments, as I say, of com complicity and or refusal. So Lazzarato, Maurizio Lazzarato, Foucauldian economist, um, he suggests neoliberalism rests on what he calls five states of being. And I find this quite useful uh, to think about as an ontology of neoliberalism. And he suggests these are individualisation, inequality, insecurity, depoliticisation and financialization. And in the paper version, I talk about each of these to some extent. But what I'm interested in here is the latter two, depoliticisation and financialisation. And already people have talked quite a lot about financialisation. Um, but I'm going to, to use them in a slightly different way um, from the way that he uses them. Um, but together they constitute a, a particular politics of the social, a particular uh, neoliberal ontology set over and against and displacing a, a prior uh, welfare uh, ontology. And the other, the other starting points I mentioned in terms of Foucault's earlier work, I, I, was, I was very taken with a phrase from this, this um, interview on, on truth and power where Foucault says, we're constrained or condemned to confess or to discover the truth. So the paper is organised around these two aspects of truth. The confession of truths, that is to say the truths told about us and the truths we tell about ourselves, and the discovery of truth, the truths that we tell about others. So I want to talk about those both aspects, both aspects of truth in that in, in that sense. I'll say more about the latter because there's a lot about the former, the truths we tell about ourselves, but I will say at least a little bit about that uh, uh, first. And also throughout the paper there's this, there's this kind of trope that I use which is the notion of, of doubles um, and I'll pick out some of those doubles. The confession and discovery is, is the initial double, although there's also in here and out there, and there's big end neoliberalism and small end neoliberalism, but then some, some more kind of analytical doubles as well. So the, the confessions of truth are, are, are fairly straightforward, and we all know about these, and there's a lot written about these. Um, this is what Roger Burroughs calls uh, living with the H-index, the, the, the force and brute logic and, and the stunning triviality of the, the performance data that we're constantly confronted with uh, and expected to use to think about ourselves. Uh, and, and Roger Burroughs has a long list of, of measures and indicators and indexes uh, which are used um, in relation to academic life and academic productivity. Um, in preparing for the paper, I, I'd never previously ever got round to looking up my H-index 
In fact, I was actually not clear what it was. So I both looked up my H index and read about what an H index is. I'm not sure I entirely understand the mathematical logic of an H index, but I do know what my H index is now. I'm not sure what I do with it, but well, I, I, there are possibilities of what I can do with it, which, I, which I'll come on to in a moment. It's also important in passing, and this is another kind of double, that of course these are not simply technologies of government. They're also technologies of the economy, inasmuch that many of these measures and indicators are sites of profit. There are companies or organisations who make money out of doing them. So the QS rankings of universities... um, which, by virtue of modesty, I won't say any more about, um, uh, is a profit-making activity. Um, I've tried to make sense of how they make a profit. I haven't quite grasped that yet, but there's a profit-making activity. But these indexes and indicators also work upon our practice in a variety of ways. Not simply who we are, but also what we do. They create a framework of calculation and rationality within which we make decisions. And these are financialized decisions. Um, and Alex Rushford has done uh, a little research on this, looking at academic practice. And uh, uh, he's, he's talked about this on, on Sarah de Ricca's blog. I don't know if you've read her blog. It's a very interesting blog about academic life. And he says, uh, for instance, a performance indicator like the journal impact factor was routinely mobilised, this based on interviews with academics, informally in researchers' decision-making as an ad hoc standard against which to evaluate the likely uses of information and resources, and in deciding whether time and resources should be spent in pursuing them. So here we have um, academic Uh, economicus um, acting as a rational calculating subject deciding how to invest time and energy in relation to possible returns and the indexes provide a way of of, uh, generating that, that decision making but also we're not simply the recipients of these indicators, there are other ways in which we are the producers of them. And, and one way in which we produce these, and this is a genre, a literary genre that I'm very interested in and like to do more work on, and that's the CV. Um, and the CV is interesting because um, it draws upon skills that we're very good at. We're very good at writing and representation. It's what we do in much of our work. Um, and the CV uh, is an opportunity for us to fabricate ourselves for the purposes of the gaze or visibility or comparison. So we can, we can make, create what Haggerty and Erickson call a data double an abstraction of ourselves, a pragmatic self, which is there for the purposes of competition with others, for promotion, uh, for advancement, for performance-related pay, uh, for job applications. It's an additional self, as Mark Poster Poster puts it, or an exercise in self-marketing, as Schuker puts it. In these CVs, we take ourselves far too seriously. We exceed the expectations of audit. We engorge and expand ourselves. We make a spectacle of ourselves. Literally make a spectacle of ourselves. In a couple of committees that I'm involved in, we've actually had to impose a limit on the length of CVs (laughs) of six pages. We were getting CVs of 30 pages, 40 pages, 50 pages, telling the life stories, every index, every measure, student comments, reviews of books, reviews of articles, the number of and list of all PhDs examined, everything that you could possibly not want to know about somebody who was applying for a job. Anyway, there's more to be said about that. But CVs are one of those points of contact a very active point of contact between the technologies of government and the technologies of the self um, and, and could be explored uh, in much more detail and, I, and I, want to, I want to do that although I haven't done enough of that yet 
But let me go on um, and very quickly just say something about the demand for truth, the second aspect of this uh, economy of truth, uh, the truths that we tell about um, others. Uh, and again, uh, financialization plays a, a key role here. And this was talked about a lot yesterday, so I won't rehearse it. But the way in which our research is increasingly responsive to flows of funding but not simply in terms of the money that that generates but also the requirements that we address particular kinds of issues which are determined elsewhere and what I want to suggest is there's another double here that this process of the financialization of research is both a form of governing governing us but also is implicating us ever more than was always the case in processes of governing others. And this was the kind of behavioural science knowledge that, that was talked about yesterday. So that we are, as we always were, but in new ways and re re newly ramified ways, involved in the management of the population through our research, that we're doing in effect, neoliberal research. Our research is being neoliberalised and is becoming neoliberal. And, and this works in a, in a variety of ways, which I, I haven't got the time to go through in any detail. One is obviously the, the, the providing uh, fodder, if you like, for, for governing by, by numbers. The generation, not simply the numbers themselves, but the systems and procedures and indexes on which, uh, from which the numbers are generated. Um, and this, this leads to various kinds of, of data work, which then is taken up in the practice of other subjects. So in schools, for example, this is uh, uh, an example taken from a book about the use of data in schools. Kelly and Downey talk about the way in which uh, data work is now part of the everyday life of modern learning and knowing. And that data is, for the most part, produced out of academic research. But there's another sense in which the research that we're doing is becoming neoliberal. In terms of the relationship between research and what works, mediated through value for money and cost effectiveness. That is, the identification and the costing of programmes of pedagogy and organisation which are related to the maximisation of student performance. So if you look, for example, at the Education Endowment Foundation website, they offer a toolkit. And the purpose of the toolkit is that it gives a cost-related effectiveness analysis of different kinds of pedagogies and organisational practices which then allow teachers to make decisions about what is the best investment in terms of cost and returns in particular pedagogies or programmes. And what is happening here, in effect, I think, is the creation of a complex value chain or investment chain it begins with a body of research which identifies the cost-effectiveness of particular programmes. This then creates a framework in which the teacher or the school, as a rational, calculating, neoliberal actor, will make decisions about the best use of their funds in terms of investment in these programmes related to the returns in terms of student performance. This then impacts on the teacher in the classroom who will use those programmes selectively in relation to different students who are judged to be more or less likely to generate returns to the institution in terms of their performance. And I've written about this separately in the way in which teachers make decisions, particularly at GCSE level, about those students worth attending to because you can drive them across the CD boundary and those that can be left on their own because they're not going to make any contribution to the school's um, external performance indicators. Those performances then are used to generate a comparative index, a, a league table of school performances, which are meant to provide a rational framework for parents to make decisions about the investment 
of their decisions in their children's future in terms of performance returns and eventually university and access to the labour market. So there's this, there's this chain, this value chain uh, of investment decisions which um, has running through it um, research, both as its starting point um, and, its, and its mediation. So, um, why is research really useful? It says on the Education Endowment uh, Fund website, um, because we believe educational research can help schools get the maximum educational bang for their buck. (laughs) That's a pretty straightforward, financialised version of research. Uh, that's what the research is for, that's what, the, um, that's what the website's for. And there are increasing numbers of these What Works websites, um, these platforms, which provide um, evaluations and cost-effective analyses of different kinds of, um, of research into all different aspects of, of social life. So there's another double here, I think. There are, uh, sorry, no, I skipped over the other point I wanted to make, which is in all of this, of course, what we have is a technicisation of research and concomitantly a depoliticisation of research. That the, 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 the values, the political, the normative dimensions of decision making in relation to uh, programs of of pedagogy in schools or practice in other arenas uh, are stripped out and replaced by financial and technical decision-making. Matthew Clark puts it, issues and standards and accountability typically represented by politicians as matters of technical efficiency rather than normative choices. So there's a depoliticisation of research. And to draw to a close very quickly, there's another double in here I want to suggest. There's there's, there's a, a, a... an economic and government return. An economic return to um, the university in terms of research income uh, and a governmental return to the state in terms of the management of the population and the effective, uh, cost-effective use of, of resources. Um, uh, so a governed and governing double so the economy of, of, of truth has various dimensions to it. We earn income directly and indirectly from our university. Um, and in relation to that, we confront moments of, of decision-making in relation to those points of contact that I tried to talk about. Um, and another way I was thinking of an alternative way of presenting today, and, I, and eventually I didn't, was... was to talk about my very ambivalent and I think mistaken decision to allow myself to become an impact narrative. Um, I tried. To, I tried to, um, to when I was asked to do this. I was. I was told that this could be worth one hundred and twenty thousand pounds a year to the institution, um, and I had to make a decision about whether I became an irresponsible subject. <laughs> And that, for me, is, was, was a political moment. I think I, I misjudged it in various ways. And I, I tried to write an anti-narrative. I tried to write a narrative about this research, which was a critique of, of impact. But as I said to somebody yesterday, I, it reminded me of the Native American saying, which I like, which I'll finish, which says that sometimes you eat the bear and sometimes the bear eats you. And in this case, I think the bear ate me. Oh, no. (laughs) Um, We also improve our outputs and impacts in various ways through through the research we do, and we we invest these in our meta-self, and we contribute to the um, efficiencies of business and government through our research. So there are a whole variety of overlapping economies of truth. And I'll finish with uh, Maria Tambuku, who's written a very interesting paper using a ransom. Foucault's notion of parousia, and she says, what is the role of the academic when going through dark times vis-à-vis questions of truth-telling? What are the conditions of possibility for truth-telling to be recognised as a question or a problem, and how can we start mapping the effects of what we as academics do or refrain from doing? Which I think reminds me of uh, Foucault's point that sometimes the important thing is not to think about what we do, but to think about what we do does. 
Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, our second presenters are Professors Penny Jane Burke and Jill Crozier from Roehampton University. Okay, I'm also going to stand up because there's been too much sitting in the last couple of days. Um, like Stephen, I also woke up this morning thinking, oh my goodness, it's all been said. But actually, I think that um, Jill and I's paper will work very nicely with Stephen's because what we're going to look at is pedagogies in higher education, um, looking at data and trying to tease out how some of these workings around governing ourselves and governing others play out around power and in particular around gender. So we're going to present an analysis of the ways that neoliberalism works at the micro level of pedagogical subjectivities, which implicate subjects in regulatory and disciplinary technologies of the self. And within neoliberalized higher education, discourses of teaching excellence have become taken for granted, couched in the language of the market, of course, with a preoccupation on the notion of student engagement increasingly, and also, of course, of league tables. The notion of diversity um, has been embraced, as we're all aware of, um, often used as a marketing tool. But this ignores the ways that diversity is intertwined with difference and also of misrecognition. Difference tends to be reduced to the marketing images of happy university students from other kinds of backgrounds, and diversity is often constructed as unproblematic and desirable, whilst difference is something to be controlled and, uh, and regulated through standardization and quality assurance processes. Higher education policy emphasizes the imperative to develop human capital to create competitive knowledge economies and employable individuals. Pedagogies are reduced then to the language of the market, including um, these discourses that we use and everyday practices of delivery, style, and efficiency, and to notions of consumer demand and satisfaction in what becomes an educational package that is delivered by universities competing in the business of higher education. But discourses of flexibility have also recently reemerged in teaching and learning in higher education, which point to the development of flexible provision to address a diversified market. Although we recognize that, of course, flexibility is important in addressing questions of diversity in higher education, the particular neoliberal discourse of flexibility individualizes the performative to be flexible, with staff demonstrating their value in terms of juggling research, teaching, and administration in the context of intensified workloads and expectations, and students often juggling full-time study with unpaid and paid work outside of the university. This is tied in with discourses um, of employability and has profound effects, of course, on subjecti uh, subjectivity, including what it might mean to be an academic or a student in the 21st century university. With decreasing and constrained uh, budgets in the age of austerity, this means doing more with less. And there is pressure through target setting um, to continually demonstrate individual value for money in increasingly competitive and nar narrowly framed contexts. Furthermore, recognition of the legitimate academic subject is formed under the gaze of technologies of classification tied in with rankings, assessments, gradings, league tables, surveys, evaluations, and so forth. Discourses of excellence are circulated to produce dividing practices where pedagogic spaces form a panopticon and bodies are made visible through um, dividing practices. Neoliberalism, then, frames academic spaces, concealing the ways that pedagogical encounters form subjectivities, ways of being and ways of doing. 
Sarah Ahmed's work helps us to consider how the emotional shapes such processes, the ways that the emotional uh, works on but also marks out different bodies. She argues that emotions, quote, produce the very surfaces and boundaries that allow the individual and the social to be delineated as if they are objects. Pedagogies are formed through classed, gendered, and racialized subjectivities intimately bound up with historical ways of being a teacher or a student in higher education. Neoliberal imperatives emphasize techno-rationalist discourses of human capital and individual responsibility and characteristics associated with difference in higher education, such as being emotional, are regulated and controlled through a range of disciplinary technologies. Pedagogical relations are thus deeply implicated in the gendered politics of misrecognition and profoundly connected to the impact of the emotional on the body and on the self. Nancy Frazier... Um, explains that to be misrecognized is to be constituted by institutionalized patterns of cultural value in ways that prevent one from participating as a peer in social life. Nancy Frazier's concept disrupts individualizing discourses of self-regulation, replacing the gaze on changing institutions and social practices. The notion of misrecognition sheds light on the ways that institutionalized cultural value patterns have discriminatory and exclusionary effects on the differential and unequal positioning of persons. By locating misrecognition at the level of the institution, Frazier develops an objectivist perspective of recognition. This perspective enables concrete strategies that are aimed at dismantling institutionalized forms of discrimination and exclusion. However, as Lois McNay has argued, this does not address the lived and emotional dimensions and experiences of of, uh, misrecognition. The ways that academics and students are differentiated but also live out those differentiations through practice and everyday practices is embodied and yet usually perceived as about differences in natural or innate potential and ability. The concept of embodied identities emphasizes the working of power and difference and the ways that these are marked and inscribed on the body, but also the ways that they are resisted or subverted through what Foucault calls practices of the self. To bring these theoretical arguments to life now, we're going to, bring, we're going to draw on some of the data from our project called Formations of Gender in Higher Education Pedagogies, and we've circulated a handout with the methods and approaches to give you a sense of what we did. We don't have time to go through the methodology. So the gap data reveal the complex ways that students associated with difference become characterized through dividing practices that name and make visible the other. Such characterizations include a range of deficit disorders, such as lack of confidence. Confidence is used as a signifier of a legitimate and normalized student and is framed as a neutral, decontextualized, and disembodied trait that students from disadvantaged backgrounds lack. However, the politics of recognition that might work on the student to recast them as lacking confidence becomes hidden. At the same time, the individual becomes the focus of remedial forms of support. Um, And these are attached to anxieties about the lowering of standards, but also the feminization of higher education, and are detached from the emotional and, and embodied processes of exclusion and marginalization. So, for example, the complex processes of decoding the expectations surrounding acceptable forms of of pedagogical participation and subjectivity are made invisible. Rather, the student associated with disadvantage often reproduces the narrative of lack of self-confidence and is repositioned as the weak, needy, passive, and feminized student at the center of derogatory discourses of widening participation. This is connected to the emotional work of internalizing processes of misrecognition and othering. Lynn Raphael Reed and her colleagues argue that shame is a social emotion and is internalized as a feeling of of lack of self-worth or sense of failure. (laughs) Shaming is deeply connected to such politics of misrecognition, both the fear of being shamed but also the internalization of shame. 
Foucault's concept of dividing practices helps to develop such themes of shaming and being shamed in the constitution of student subjectivities. Dividing practices create boundaries which mark difference on the other who is classified as non-standard or non-traditional or a WP student. The discourse of lack of confidence, which is seen to be resolved through the delivery of study skills and other kinds of remedial forms of support, detaches the embodied experiences of misrecognition, such as the nausea and extreme forms of um, anxiety expressed by the student on the previous slide. And this helps to manipulate anxieties about higher education becoming feminized and too soft. So in the gap data... Such anxieties were repeatedly articulated in terms of notions of spoon-feeding, which was seen as evidence of the dumbing down and feminization of teaching and learning. The suggestion that there's some kind of deficit that teachers have to remedy through performing a maternal nurturing role that is deemed as an inappropriate in higher education re-legitimizes certain forms of pedagogic practice associated with being an independent learner. Independence has, of course, long-standing historical connotations, the feminine body constructed as weak, dependent, and passive. The assumption that pedagogy has become feminized operates to reclaim patriarchal forms of authority, knowledge, and practice in universities connected to masculinized notions of rationality, competition, and excellence. Teaching that is deemed to be feminized and soft is connected to anxieties about encouraging passivity in students. Pedagogical spaces, of course, are complex and ridden uh, with contradictions that academics and students alike are compelled to decode and negotiate in the process of staking out a claim as a legitimate subject. Within neoliberal frameworks, some forms of emotion are elevated. So, for example, those emotions that might be seen as useful to the development of employability as, um, quoting Goldman, tools that can be used by subjects in the project of life and career enhancement. And the the display of caring is a key example of the way some forms of emotion are elevated, but only within the constraints of neoliberal discourse. This requires the continual working on the self and control over emotions through what might be uh, recognized as appropriate forms of caring. The discourse of caring strips out social inequalities such as class and gender, whilst also signifying difference and marking out bodies out of place. Good teachers should teach in ways that show that they care about their students and their subject, and good students should learn in ways that show that they care about their learning. And I'm going to now pass over to Jill to continue. Thank you. Okay, so as well as the uh, pressures and positionings on the lecturers themselves, um, the lecturers also construct those students who are associated with widening participation in particular ways as different from the norm. And Penny has already referred to this uh, as as a deficit notion of lack. Lecturers are and feel themselves to be under this immense pressure, which we've heard quite a lot about over these two days. But they do want to support and ensure uh, student success. However, there is a tension around a notion of readiness for university study and that these widening participation students are not very well equipped to engage with university work. And indeed, as this lecturer indicates, she doesn't even think they know what university is for. Student participation, of course, is tied to unequal power relations of class, gender and race, which often renders the student silent or without voice. And this is frequently misunderstood as student inadequacy or ineptitude. So in our GAP project, we found a sense of disjuncture between the aims of the lecturer's pedagogic practices, the tacit knowledge and assumptions which underpin these practices, and how these were experienced on the ground by students. 
The lecturers expressed a concern with the way's multiple expectations and demands, including these wider policy discourses about teaching in HE, as well as their pedagogic practices, contributed to the instrumental approach to the learning that they described. And some expressed um, a concern that they might be complicit in a pedagogic practice that positioned the students as passive recipients of higher education teaching. So there was evidence of reflexivity amongst the lecturers. And this lecturer, first he talks about his subject as business studies, which in this university is male-dominated, and he talked about the marginalisation of women. Then he went on to talk about the lecture actually silencing students, and then we suddenly shift, he said, and ask them to participate in discussion. And he was struggling with um, his own practice in rendering um, these student voices uh, as marginalised. However, students who are silent are often constructed as very passive and and the lecturers talked about silences as being intolerable and quite tortuous. And yet, in the students' accounts, as Penny has actually indicated, they, um, when they are encouraged to um, speak and discuss and so on, they're often frozen and um, terrified by the, the very thought. And as well as feeling ill, as Penny has just mentioned, they often talked about hiding behind friends um, since they felt too inhibited to, to speak. Now, seminars and related expectations about participation paradoxically create these uncomfortable and disempowering spaces for students. And we suggest that these, uh, that underpinning this, there are assumptions that certain kinds of voice is the proper form of HE participation, which makes other students feel rather stupid. This participation in HE pedagogies requires displaying the right dispositions, citing the right discourses, embodying the right subjectivities, and displaying the right forms of performatives. This highlights the complexity of participation for students who are trying to address a number of competing regulatory discourses on a range of contradictory levels and, of course, across shifting power relations. Students from working class backgrounds have to struggle to assert their authenticity and their right to be at university at all, and they often struggle with their own perceptions of learner identity. Competitiveness and notions of the good student have an impact on students' learning experiences. Now, students do develop um, strategies to cope with or avoid some of the difficulties they encounter in the learning situation. Bourdieu talked about um, how students collude with the professorial distancing that this kind of setup um, reinforces. But some students do engage in what Sarah Mann described as acts of resistance, and this often manifests itself through what lecturers described as disruptive behaviour, talking in the lecture, um, arriving late, texting, and so on. Um, as this uh, May lecturer recounts, and so we suggest that um, it appears that some voices um, are not always welcome, particularly those constructed as noisy or, uh, and unruly. Although voice is uh, often seen as a key indicator of participation, the teachers also talk about the illegitimate voice of students. 
The teachers are also caught up in regulatory discourses, as we've heard. For example, they're compelled, it seems, to take up a position as the controller of student voice. Voices constructed as unruly, as you see here, are often connected to constructions of excessive masculinity and are also classed and raised. So lecturers expressed concern and disquiet about students' non-conforming behaviour. In this way, diversity might sometimes be seen by white staff and students as a form of contamination of higher education culture, particularly when tied to polarising discourses of the other kind of student, implicitly connected with widening participation agendas. The widening participation subject is constructed as not knowing what is acceptable or or indeed understanding the unspoken rules of the game. The student associated with widening participation is constructed in such instances as a threat to higher education standards. For white middle-class students, they're concerned with the symbolic an exchange value of their higher education capital under threat. And I I obviously haven't got time to develop that, but we have got a paper in which we elaborate on the white middle-class student perspective on the working class and black and minority ethnic students. So for them, this uh, concern is exacerbated by the neoliberal market conditions and the discourse of university authenticity, together with the intensification of competition for graduate jobs. Penny will just finally. Okay. So, um, just to conclude, then we've we've tried to capture the ways in which um, neoliberalism uh, works at the micro level of pedagogical experience, relation, and practice um, around questions of the ways in which we both regulate ourselves, but also regulate ev- uh, others through our everyday encounters. And this highlights the complexity of power relations, but also the ways in which we have to understand um, how social inequalities re-emerge in these these, uh, everyday practices. Um, And what we found, which was really troubling from the data, was that the experience of participating in higher education pedagogies does very little to challenge exclusionary, misogynistic, racist, classist, classist social imaginaries. And this is highly troubling. There seems to be no space to actually interrogate some of the kinds of um, problematic assumptions that we've heard from both the lecturers and the students through pedagogical spaces. So in this way, higher education pedagogies are deeply implicated in the perpetuation of politics of misrecognition. And in the age of austerity, students and lecturers do seem to be prone towards risk-averse practices. And this unwittingly reinforces tendencies towards exclusion and also the fear of difference. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much for a very rich presentation. Um, last not but least, we have uh, Professor Rosalind Gill from City University, who will be speaking about the psychic life of neoliberalism in the academy. Thank you very much. Um, I'm going to break the mold. I'm going to sit down. Yes. Um, Would you like to sit in the front? Oh, yeah. Okay. So, um, I'm really sorry, but I couldn't be here yesterday because I was at the Gender Work and Organisation Conference in Kiel. So, I missed some of the, um, well, I missed all the presentations. So, I imagine that what I'm going to be saying is going to be kind of um, quite, you know, chiming in and resonating with a lot of what was discussed yesterday. And, And basically, what I want to argue is that 
there's a deep sense of crisis afflicting universities and that anyone who spends even um, a small amount of time with academics encounters a profession stretched to breaking point, restructured to death. The victims have speeded up change, accelerating and proliferating demands, which are seemingly exacerbated rather than um, helped by information and communication technologies, viz. the email that Stephen talked about, um, and a work culture that requires that one is always on. And, of course, this resonates very much with with your talk, Stephen, because, like you, I want to argue that the the crisis isn't simply a matter of large-scale institutional transformation, although it is that, Um, but it's also a psychosocial crisis. It's also a somatic crisis, and it's being experienced by academics in terms of chronic stress, anxiety, exhaustion, insecurity, insomnia, and rapidly increasing rates of physical and mental illness. And this is what I've I've called, borrowing from Richard Sennett's work, the hidden injuries of of, of academia. And I think they're still silenced within um, the official channels of the academy, and they still don't have proper channels of expression. They're still much more likely to be topic of informal conversations, coffee break conversations in conferences, chats between colleagues, email exchanges between colleagues, than they are ever to appear on a departmental um, agenda. Even though they're so pervasive, they, we all know that we're experiencing them, and yet there's this kind of pervasive silence around them. They don't have proper channels. Even, I would contend, in most union meetings, this kind of um, culture of Uh, precarity, this culture of intense overwork, the kind of um, levels of stress, the levels of mental illness that we as a profession are uh, suffering from. It's kind of the elephant in the room and it's quite ironic, I think, that it takes the Murdoch press in the form of the Times Higher and the Guardian newspaper doing um, a series of articles about um, universities in crisis, the mental health crisis within the academy, to actually bring these things to attention rather than us ourselves. Yesterday, as you'll probably have seen, the British Medical Association produced a report about the levels of of stress and mental illness and increasing rates of suicide amongst doctors, and that's already received a huge amount of attention. Nothing parallel for academics. Um, So I want to talk very briefly about... um, Three issues, casualization and precariousness, the culture of overwork and audit culture, performativity and surveillance. And then want to go on to ask questions about why there is such a lack of, of resistance and why there's such a, an absence of a political vocabulary um, and critique in relation to these issues. So starting with the first around precariousness, this idea that academics are the privileged amongst all workers um, with cushy tenured positions, long holidays, um, it has such a hold in the popular imagination. In fact, as we know, in reality, um, it's very, very difficult, different from that. Precariousness rather than security is now the defining experience of academic life. So statistics from the um, Higher Education Statistics Agency reveal that around a third of academic staff in universities in the UK is now employed on a temporary contract. But that figure hides um, everybody that's not on a salary, which is around 90,000 hourly paid workers. So it's a massive underestimation of the true extent of casualisation. And in fact, in the last two years alone, the number of teaching-only staff on temporary contracts has increased by um, a third. According to our union, the UCU, HE is now one of the most casualised sectors of employment in Britain. Only the hospitality industry has a greater proportion of temporary workers and casuals. And short-term positions are obviously a particular feature of early career. Scare quotes around that, please, because we know early career now lasts forever in many cases. Uh, those kinds of academic biographies as permanent positions get repackaged for lower pay and few, if any, benefits. 
hourly paid teaching assistant or visiting lecturer positions predominant, frequently only compensating contact hours, or alternatively with a kind of purely fictional um, understanding of how long it actually takes to prepare lectures, run seminars, meet with students for tutorials, grade work, and so on. Um, and despite a kind of nomenclature that implies that these positions are to assist um, rather than to run courses, PhD students and new postdocs often find themselves delivering mass undergraduate programs with little or no support. And as casualization deepens and expands across the sector, these positions, which are mostly imagined by those people who are doing them as something that they're doing to get a foot in the door, something experienced that they're getting ahead of, a proper job, are increasingly becoming normalised and routinized and becoming a kind of below-the-line, completely normalised profession, to use an analogy from cultural work. And there's, of course, as many people, um, including in this room, have argued, the striking class, gender, racialized dimensions to all of this. As long ago as 1996, Jill Blackmore argued that the restructuring of UK academia has led to a remasculinization of the centre or the core and a flexible peripheral labour market of increasingly feminized, casualized, and deprofessionalized teachers. And Diane Ray has distinguished between what she calls academic capital and academic labour and posited that women are the kind of feminine lump and proletariat of academia, overrepresented in the lower grades and in the temporary positions. And last year, 2013, the Times Higher produced its first ever global gender index, which described, quote, startling levels of sexual inequality among staff in <coughs> academic institutions across the world. Another issue that I want to talk about is time pressure related to the spiralling demands of the job of academic which are a consequence of many different things, massive underfunded in, um, growth in student numbers, the restructuring of admin and secretarial roles so that work that would have previously been done by others is devolved to academics, the transformative impact of information and communication technologies, the exhortation to do more with less, to tweet, to blog, to webcast your lectures, you know, it just never ends. Um, the multiplying pressure from research audits like the ERA, the PBRF, the REF, to get grant income, to publish in top-ranked journals, to engage with research users, to generate impact, etc., etc., and the intensification of, of work within academia as um, borne out by time use surveys. In fact, as long ago as 2006, the union used official statistics to calculate that academics were working on average 25% extra every single week. Or, to put it another way, um, we were working for free for three months of the year. Um, and what I think is interesting is that this kind of free labour, um, unlike paid internships, which rightly have received, um, unpaid internships rather, which rightly have received critique and attention, this kind of free labour is completely normalised. It's kind of absorbed. Um, and it, those figures were from 2006. Um, the most recent UCU survey shows that you know routinely people are working way over the hours specified by the European Working Time Directive and it's all unpaid. Because academics are finding they're unable to get the work done in the normal working week, so that's leading to long hours underpaid, not treated as overtime, leading to intense stress, anxiety about keeping up, many, many spending evenings and weekends working. And it's ironic that I think one of the kind of seductive um, powers of, um, that binds us to this is the kind of the idea of the autonomy of the academic and our, our time autonomy in particular. And that is fast eroding because we're finding that we have to work all the time. So it's a bit of a kind of nominal autonomy. Um, I think Melissa Gregg's work's been particularly important in highlighting the role that email and other information and communication technologies play in that. 
And the third set of concerns I wanted to focus on, um, Stephen's already mentioned, but concerning audit culture within universities. Surveillance of high-end workers like academics has received hardly any attention, but Roger Burroughs has argued that we're fast becoming one of the most intensely monitored and intensely surveilled groups of workers, and he's demonstrated, and again Stephen mentioned this, that any individual academic can now be ranked and measured on more than 100 different scales and indices which become the calculations that measure academics' value and that monetize that value. These metrics assess grant income, citation scores, esteem indicators, student evaluations, impact factors, PhD completions, the list goes on. And it's a very powerful um, example, I think, of power at a distance uh, because the resulting scores can be used to do things to generate funding, they close down courses, they single out individuals for discipline, um, disciplinary hearings and so on. Um, and Chris Shaw has argued that these kinds of auditing processes are having a corrosive effect on uh, um, people's sense of professionalism and autonomy. They're producing what Chris Lorenz has called self-exploitation and inner immigration and they're also producing a distinctive kind of precarity that um, doesn't just go all the way down into our psyche, but goes all the way up structurally and institutionally because um, everyone's at risk because the clock starts afresh each, each time. Um, and, for example, in my university... Um, if you get a student evaluation average of less than 3.5 out of a, on a five-point scale where five is good, oh, well, excellent, then um, if you get less than 3.5, it will automatically trigger um, the start of a disciplinary process. And increasing this is actually happening without any human intervention whatsoever because it's all done through algorithm, algorithms and computer programs that pick up that score and then kind of initiate an email sequence that goes out to the lecturer in question. This is kind of power at a distance, um, as Roger Burroughs has talked about it. Um, and, of course, all these kind of performativity measures, all these aspects of audit culture, they also erase history. They erase any kind of context. As Guy Redden has said, the, the REF, the assessment exercise, is typical in that regard. Everybody starts from zero, and the clock starts afresh each time. So what I want to argue, you know, or, or ask really, is well, why has there been so little resistance to this? Um, and I think one of the many answers ha surely has to do with the kind of um, love of the work and the way that that exerts its own disciplinary power, creating what Andrew Ross has called a kind of sacrificial ethos that we're, we're called to, our, it's a vocation, we're called to our work. Um, and Angela McRobbie has developed this, talking about the way that this kind of passion for our work binds us to conditions that would otherwise be recognised as profoundly exploitative um, another reason must be overwork itself. You know, it surely is the greatest technology to stamp out resistance, is to make us be running on our wheels so fast that we have no time to actually even go to union meetings, let alone to take part in collective resistance. Um, just the sheer lack of time, the sheer pressure that people are under itself constitutes kind of part of the answer, I think, as to why there's been so little resistance. Um, but I think another part of the answer does have to do with um, the way that we are becoming kind of the archetypal subjects of neoliberalism. We are... Um, the neoliberal subjects par excellence, we respond to pressure not by resisting but by working harder and harder, working longer and longer. We're very responsibilised subjects. Um, we barely need any top-down control because we autonomously do it ourselves. We take responsibility. We reinvent ourselves. We, we write those 30-page CVs to just try and do better. Um, we reinvent our research histories to try and fit in with the late 
latest fashion in research funding. Um, we respond um, as iconic neoliberal subjects. Um, and what I think, um, what, what I've been looking at recently is the... The, the kinds of ways that there, there are responses to this. Um, when I wrote my Hidden Injuries of Academia piece five years ago, it, I called it Breaking the Silence because it did feel as if there was a, a deafening silence about our conditions of labour. Um, but I think that silence has completely been broken now. For example, the blogosphere is just has been a, a major site of people writing about um, their experiences as academics. Um, but a lot of the different kinds of responses, I think, end up being pulled into the same kinds of individualistic neoliberal practices that probably need our critique and resistance. And one area that I've been looking at in particular is the um, sudden proliferation within occupational health departments, counselling services, um, disability services, all these kinds of services within universities of um, different kinds of, of strategies that uh, academics are being taught for managing to survive within these cruel conditions. And perhaps the one that seems to be taking over all the rest. You know, we've had time management, we've had stress management, we've had managing conflict, we've had managing difficult colleagues. We've had, it's all, they're all kind of strategies of self-management. But the one that seems to have really, really captured um, higher education institutions' imaginations right now is resilience training. And, for example, at my university... You can go to a resilience training workshop, a one-day workshop, twice a week, every week. It's such a, it is such a thing. And it is, um, in a way, the most perfect example of a technology of the self because it's all about learning to adapt to change, to trauma, to crisis, that you work on the self and you become a more flexible, adaptable, resilient subject rather than actually stopping and um, beginning to resist collectively. Um, so that's what I'm going to move on to look at next. Thank you. Thank you.